Before we begin this week's show, I wanted to let the listeners know that I had originally set out to do a 10-part series about who killed Amy Mahalovic. As we enter the 10th episode, I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news first. The case is still ongoing, and there isn't an answer to the question of who killed Amy Mahalovic. Yet I'm not satisfied with where things stand. The good news is that with each new episode, new things are brought to my attention. And it turns out 10 episodes just doesn't provide enough time to give the story the coverage it deserves. So as they say, the show must go on until we get closer to the answer of who killed Amy Mahalovic. Previously on Who Killed Amy Mahalovic. We just passed the 17th anniversary in the disappearance of Amy Mahalovic. On October 28, 1989, she was kidnapped in broad daylight near a plaza right across the street from the Bay Village Police Department. People in Northeast Ohio will remember this case very well. Who killed Amy? Who killed Amy Mahalovic? It's a question that has baffled investigators now for 17 years. Sweet little girl from quiet Bay Village kidnapped, murdered. It has been just over 24 years since Amy Mahalovic disappeared from the Bay Square shopping center in Bay Village. Her body was found in an Ashland County field in February of 1990. Through the years, several possible suspects have been looked at, but there has never been an arrest. Over the past 25 years, investigators conducted thousands of interviews, but couldn't close the case. The killer knew so much about the family. There's now a renewed focus on those who knew Amy's mother, Margaret, and may remember something or someone unusual. I'm not surprised that we still get calls. Um, I'm disappointed that we haven't gotten further along in the case. Cleveland 19 News at 5 o'clock continues with a heartbreaking case, the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic. Certainly, this is a case we've been following for years. The 10-year-old girl was kidnapped from a Bay Village shopping center, and her body was found in a field four months later. The unsolved case still haunts police nearly 30 years later. See New Yorker is getting answers on a new attempt to bring this family some justice. What makes Amy's case so unique is the manner in which she was abducted. This wasn't some random act of opportunity. In the home of Bill Huffman is a makeshift studio, the walls covered with photos and newspaper clippings of a mystery that's yet to be solved. And welcome to episode one of the Who Killed Amy Mahalovic podcast. The investigative journalist was just 10 years old in 1989 when the crime happened, the same age as Amy Mahalovic. Her unsolved kidnapping and murder has haunted him for years. It just was one of those cases that just stuck with me. So he started a podcast. For the last several months, he's been interviewing investigators and those involved with Amy's case, hoping to find new clues and get answers. He tells me one of his most difficult conversations was with Amy's father, Mark. It's one thing to see a missing poster, and it's another thing to meet the father of the daughter. Tell us, why do you think this story resonates with people all over the world? Well, I just think Amy's case is so unique, and basically it boils down to the way that she was abducted. Most abductions aren't part of a ruse. Amy was called at home. You know, potentially this person knew that she was home alone. There are 10 episodes, and every Friday Huffman will release one up until the anniversary of the day Amy went missing, October 27th. Any little bit of extra information, any tips that come in, um, 
that could be generated from this podcast, uh, then the, the podcast has served its purpose. Getting answers in Bay Village. Let the killer know that this community will never forget what he did that day and remind him that we will one day find out who killed Amy Mahalovic. See a New Yorker, Cleveland 19 News. Well, the podcast is available on all apps, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. If you have any tips about Amy Mahalovic's murder, please call 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-225-5324. We never gave up hope we would find her alive, but certainly her, given her age, the circumstances, you know, the, the ever-growing duration of it, it, you know, you had less hope. But nobody gave up complete hope. It was always, we, those first 109, eight, nine days, whatever it was, we were looking for Amy. After that, we were trying to solve a homicide. Right. So all resources went to finding her. And whatever we had to do to locate her, that's what. I am Bill Huffman, and welcome to episode 10 of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. On this week's episode, I will talk with James Renner, Special Agent Phil Torsney, Chief of Police Mark Spetzel, and Amy's father Mark Mahalovic. And we will discuss some of the different theories and suspects that have come up throughout the podcast. Please join me as we take a look back at some of the important information that has been brought to light throughout this show. There are some mysteries that you just can't shake. And the abduction of Amy Mihaljevic is one of those things that will forever be seared into the brains of the people of Northeast Ohio. I created this podcast to keep Amy's story in the public spotlight. I planned on making a show that would bring Amy's story to a generation that may not be aware of the tragedy that took place on October 27th. Since 2005, true crime author James Renner has been at the forefront of the Amy Mihaljevic case, and he even published his first book, called Amy, My Search for Her Killer in 2006. We sat down a few months back and discussed who he thinks may have been responsible for the disappearance and murder of Amy Mahalovic. And we also talk about how it was that he got involved in the case from the beginning. Here was it that you actually published the book, Amy, My Search for Her Killer? Uh, Amy was published the book was published in uh, 2006. Okay. And the way that came about was in uh, 2005, I finally became a staff writer at Cleveland Scene. Uh, before that, I was working literally in the mailroom. And I don't know if you remember, you know, back to 2003, 2004, but everybody was terrified of uh, these anthrax attacks. So my job was to open up the mail and make sure that if anybody got anthrax, it was me and not the, the editorial team. So you were the canary in the in the coal mine, in the yeah, coal mine for sure. Um, so eventually, I worked my way up to staff writer, and and they said, "All right, Jimmy, what do you got?" And I said, "Well, have you heard about Amy Mihaljevic?" And most of the writers were from out of town, and they hadn't. So I briefed them on the story, and I said, "You know, at this time, it was 16 years later, I believe," and. I figured that by then the police had to know who did this, right? They just didn't have, um, you know, an, enough evidence. So I figured I'd go in and find the name of the suspect and we'd talk about and it would finally bring closure to the case. What I quickly discovered was that 
The reason this case has never been solved is there are too many men that had the means, motive, and opportunity to commit the crime. It has been over 12 years since James published his book about Amy Mihaljevic, and a lot of stuff has happened in those 12 years. So when we were sitting down and discussing the case, I wanted to know if there was anything significant that had occurred in the 12 years since the publication of his book. What has transpired since? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well... I mean, the the biggest thing is all three of my top suspects, who I think are the most likely killer, um, you know, in my mind, it has to be one of these three. None of them were actually in the book, you know. The book generated so many new clues and 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 so much new information that there were there were better stories and better suspects that came out of it. So, well, I, I'm very happy that I that I wrote the book and that it was published when it was because it it was I think it still stands on its own as a as an interesting look into how a reporter investigates a case but it also generated the information I needed in order to find out who the real really good suspects were and two of them two of two of the top 3 were not known to police prior to the book coming out too so it it did some good even though um in the end there's so much more information that came out so these new suspects, um, you know, people would Google Amy's name after that and they would find my blog and they would email tips. And the best tips that came in, I always sent to Bay Village Police or the FBI. So it's been a, a wealth of information for law enforcement, especially because these tips will come in from people that aren't necessarily interested in ever talking to police. And otherwise they wouldn't have gotten this, this information. Chief of Police Mark Spetzel does not have a short list of suspects. And when I asked him about who it was that he thought may have been involved with the case, he gave me the obvious answer of, you know, he can't answer because this is an ongoing investigation. But he also made a point to reference the fact that with all the suspects that have been investigated, there were very few that actually have been completely ruled out. I do not have a short list. I mean, there are certainly, like I said, people that we've spent a lot more time on than others because of the circumstances of their, their um, what they've been involved in. And, um, but I will tell you that from reading about cases somewhere, that sometimes it's the ones you don't expect, it's the ones you're not really looking at heavily. It's easy to look at a known sex offender who likes a girl of that age and say, well, it's got to be them. We don't know where he was, but that's got to be the and one. he looks like the composite. Right, he looks like the composite. So... Um, but that's kind of the easy way out. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make sure you know what you're doing and the facts fit in. Um, so that's why it really could be any number of people. And uh, so we never close our mind to a person. And again, we never rule them out unless we got a, you know, ironclad alibi. So that keeps a wide open area, right? And it gives you a lot of, a lot of suspects. Special Agent Phil Torsney reiterated what Chief Spetzel said about suspects. And this is what his response was when I asked him how many suspects it was that he had interviewed or that they had interviewed overall. There's thousands and thousands of tips and leads, and there's there's many, many uh, individuals that we've talked to uh, on, the, you know, uh, on the range of individuals who are just, you know, possibly were in the wrong place at the wrong time, the people that we 
we are, uh, you know, continue to look at as possibly being involved in this. There's a whole range of those people, but there's a lot of them. And uh, uh, a lot of people have been very cooperative with us and tried to help out. You know, we had that composite sketch, really. There was several of them released at mm -hmm. one point. And, you know, a lot of the calls were just, this person looks like your sketch. One of those sketches or this and that. And there was some different behavior that, you know, made people uh, somewhat suspicious. So uh, that's been going on for years and years and years. And uh, we were in the process of winnowing through all that and trying to, we have to prioritize at this point. You know, it's, uh, you know, there's certain things we're trying to do. Additional media is one of them. Uh, you know, obviously looking at science and evidence is another thing we we're doing over and over and over again. Uh, fact check, we want to make sure our facts from the beginning, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, we're correct as far as uh, that goes, because if you get something wrong at the beginning, it can affect your whole investigation. And we think we're pretty pretty good with that, with what actually happened, but there's people out there that may have a fact about uh, this case that they've never brought forward for whatever reason, and that's, that's, that's something that would be of great interest to us, even something somebody didn't think was important back then, but maybe it's they're saying, I should have called 29 years ago, we want that call. With a case like Amy's that has gone on for 29 years, the thing can take on a life of its own. So it really is important for the public to think back to what their lives were like in the year of 1989. And if they can recall what that curtain that they presented in 2016 was used for, that person could be in line for the $25,000 reward that is still being offered by the FBI. So please take a look at the picture of the curtain on whokilledamymahalovic.com and remember that it is the public that will help solve this case. When that person comes forward and identifies an individual, obviously that ramps up all the other pieces of looking at that person's history, which creates new clues and new information, then you're able to tie it together better. Potentially other cases. Right. But when you have tens of thousands of people uh, as people named as possible suspect, that's very difficult to deal with. You know, so we're really relying on the public. I believe so. At this yep. point to... Provide us the key. And that was a homemade curtain, which, you know, provided additional significance to it. Oh, you know, yeah. It wasn't something you bought at JCPenney. If it was bought at JCPenney, would they be able to trace, like, the barcode or the UPC and say, like, okay, this is where it came from, or is that all just... That's just all nice to think that that would happen, <laughs> but very unlikely, very unlikely. For example, you know, we had fibers found, uh, you know, on her body, mm -hmm. and those fibers were, you know, FBI did a great job in analyzing those, but basically it came back to a... Monsanto um, manufactured carpeting that there were literally, I mean, tons and tons and tons and tons of this distributed throughout the United States, and there's no way to track that. Fiber evidence has been used to solve some of the most notorious crimes in American history, one being the Atlanta child killings. And this is what Chief Spetzel had to say about what fiber evidence can be. That's called class evidence when you're able to compare you know, a fiber or something to uh, another uh, item like that. And, and, and that's not 100% like DNA. You know, DNA is pretty much, that's the way it is. But if you have a fiber that looks like this fiber, 
and you're able to connect them to your suspect and your victim, that's great, but it's not conclusive enough to get a conviction, but it provides that thread to tie those together and then you go from there. Now you mentioned DNA. Do you have the killer's DNA? We do not. We have, we have DNA. Uh, I won't get into too much detail, but it's not, we don't have DNA that you can plug into CODIS and come out with a suspect. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, that would be ideal, obviously. obviously. Because anymore, anybody arrested with a, for a felony, their, their DNA is taken, it goes into a database, and every law enforcement officer in the country can search that. Yeah, we, we live in a CSI world. Right. Like the public does, too. Right. right. They and they think that, oh, well, there's got to be DNA. There's got to be. And there's not always in cases. Uh, you know, we had a homicide back in uh, 2001 with a, a roofer that was killed on Lake Road, and we had no forensic evidence, and we convicted him completely on circumstantial. Great circumstantial evidence, but that's how it was solved. Wow. You don't always have forensic evidence in a case, so you have to use other methods. The difficulty is when the case is cold, I say cold, that's not even the right term, the case is older, that becomes even more problematic because people's memories fade, people die, people, uh, their memory starts to change. I mean, you probably have a recollection of events when you were a kid that if you ask somebody else would be different than your recollection. Somebody's not right, but they're not wrong either because over time things change. And uh, so... That affects the case as well. Considering it has been 29 years since Amy's abduction, the case files only grown, and it is very tough to bring new investigators into the case. So it is important that one Phil Torsney has been brought in to help with this case. But Phil being on board has been great because there's things that we want to do and did want to do that we couldn't because of manpower. And because of his familiarity with the case, he can just jump right in, go out and do interviews, follow up on leads without a whole lot of education on my part. If I was to bring you in, you're a new detective, I'm going to bring you into this case, it would take me months to get you update on where we are, what we're doing, why this, why not that. He can just jump right in. And so um, the, the, the city is also helping to pay for him to be here, but all that money is, is starting to run out now. So... Eventually, um, you know, he's probably not going to be able to continue. But having said that, I will, I will tell you this about Phil, and I'll tell you this about any other detective that has worked this case. Mm -hmm. If something comes up that looks very promising, that, you know, it's just a matter of putting manpower to it, these guys will come back and work for free. I'd come back. I'll probably be retired by then, but they'd all come back and work for free. That is how... Uh, personally involved, they become in this case to the point where, you know, you don't have to pay me. Just tell me what I got to do. I'll be there. I'll help you. That's the mentality of all the detectives that have ever worked this case because they got, you know, you're talking about a 10-year-old girl, an innocent 10-year-old girl from a very safe suburb disappears and is found dead, and it just shocks and rocks the community, right? And But it also affects everybody personally because everybody's got, most people got kids and yourself, you were that age. I can only imagine how your parents felt. Um, so you start to take it personally, like, you know, this guy, we don't know if he's done any other crimes. We don't know if he will do any more crimes. But one thing we know we want to do is identify him, arrest him, and get him off the streets, put some closure to the Mahalovic family. They deserve that. And not allow this person to perpetrate anymore. So they're, they're willing to come back and do that for free. They've all told me that. It is important to understand that Special Agent Phil Torsney is a very reserved 
individual. And you can tell that he is a very good FBI agent because he has been involved with a number of high-profile cases. And that is one thing that has led the public to believe that he is the right person to bring in Amy's killer. And when we sat down, I picked his brain about what he has been involved with. Uh, I had worked on the Whitey Bulger case in Boston uh, on a temporary basis for years trying to you know, work with the Boston office and agents there to try to locate Bolger, who was an FBI top 10 fugitive. And I always wanted to be involved in arresting a top 10 fugitive. And eventually they transferred me to Boston. And uh, while I was there, we, myself and other agents and other uh, uh, law enforcement uh, entities were able to locate Bolger out in Santa Monica, California. And uh, we arrested him. And I, I uh, myself and some other agents brought him back to Boston, and that's, that's that story. Were you there on the scene when he was arrested? No, no, it happened pretty quickly, and you know, we were across, we figured out where he was, but we called our uh, uh, FBI agents we knew, a guy named Scott Gariola in particular, who was a fugitive agent out in Los Angeles, and he got on it with his task force at LAPD, and we'll, they grabbed Bolger within, you know, a day of us calling out there. But we flew out and brought him back to Boston to face justice and went to trial and uh, he's found guilty and he's in prison. There's a lot of reasons to feel confident in Phil Torsney. He has been a part of a lot of high-profile cases that have been brought to justice. So when Phil came on board, it was not too long after that he released new evidence that had been found on the day that Amy's body was discovered. There were two items. One was a green curtain, and the other one was a light cream-colored blanket. Now, the significance of these items was that they were found some 300 feet away from where Amy's body was discovered, but they never were tested because... Back in 1989, according to Chief Spetzel, if you would have just sent a bunch of boxes to the FBI, they would not have been able to test the items, at least to the ability to what they can test them at now. So in 2016, these items were retested, and it was discovered that the dog hairs on Amy's body matched the dog hairs that were found on the curtain and the blanket. The significance of this being that the dog hairs came from Amy's family dog. There's a curtain and a blanket that were found in a field, you know, not right where Amy's body was found, but in, in the field fairly, uh, fairly close and certainly could have moved down there via weather or human activity or, or something else. So, you know, these curtain, the curtain and blanket were recovered. Uh, the same day Amy's body was located down in Ashland County, they were taken into evidence and been out here at Bay Village Police Department. Some initial testing was done, but based on improvements in science again, we, uh, we sort of resurrected those items from evidence and submitted them for additional testing. Uh, we, we believe there, well, there are hairs, canine hairs, on those items which are similar to canine hairs that were taken from the Mahalovic's dog at the time of her abduction. Uh, similar is, is the key there. We're trying, 
so the common sense thing and the thing we ask the public to do there and public participation in this is one of the things I talked to the chief about and the prosecutor is one of the things we wanted to emphasize when we when I came back on a part-time basis so uh, based on some testing various laboratories we put that curtain out there and the blanket but the curtain is more distinctive it appears to be handmade homemade from an item that was probably a bed covering initially cut down made into a curtain we've put pictures of it up on the uh, you know the Bay Village internet and we asked the public if they could help us identify who either made that curtain uh, who had it hanging up somewhere in a uh, uh, vehicle or a uh, apartment, a barn, wherever that could have been, uh, or somebody who recognizes it, recognize that curtain and can place it for us somewhere. It didn't even, it doesn't have to exactly go uh, back to somebody who may have committed this crime even, but if it gives us a spot where it originated from, then that's our job to trace it. It used to be here, it went to here, this lady made it, this seamstress sewed it. That's what we're looking for. We have had some calls and we're in the process of evaluating those calls as well, and we're looking for more. It's, uh, it's fairly distinctive, it's up there, it's, uh, but on the other hand, it's a long time ago, we understand that, and that's part of our issue is all this happened you know, 29 years ago almost at this point. You know, when I came back and started working on this after retiring from the FBI, I started working, you know, back again locally. What year did they bring you back? Uh, I believe it was 2013, maybe the fall of 2013. I retired in the spring, and it was the following fall when uh, Prosecutor McGinney uh, and I, I talked to a couple of prosecutors down there, and, and Prosecutor McGinney called me and asked if I'd be willing to come back just on a part-time basis. And that was the fall of 2013, and I did, uh, I was working overseas for a year uh, during that time. Uh, and, you know, some breaks in service there, but, you know, on a part-time, I've been coming back here to Bay Village or to the Cleveland area working on it part-time for, uh, you know, once or twice, you know, usually once a month for a period of a week to 10 days for, for a couple of years with, with various breaks. And yeah, I'll put a picture of the curtain on the website. That'd be great. I, and, uh, you know, it is a very distinct, you know, curtain or whatever it was used for. It definitely yeah. looks like something maybe out of a hotel, you know, duvet cover, some type of... Right, it, it has a distinctive, like, pattern to it from a bed cover. Look, maybe possibly originating from a bed covering and um, we, we're still looking for somebody to recognize that right. thing, at least the transformation from a bed covering into a, a curtain. And it looks like it was cut down to a specific size, you know, to cover a certain area, maybe a doorway or maybe a opening in a vehicle or a truck or something possibly on a farm, uh, a barn. So, yeah, I appreciate you putting that up there. We all do, and if you can somebody recognizes it and can let us know what they think about it. It only, all these things, it just takes the right person, and I've said this before, to see it. And just because we've put it up before, doesn't mean we shouldn't put it up again and get more publicity on it, and that's what we're trying to do. So the curtain, 
uh, is more distinctive than the blanket, but it was two items found in that field and good possibility Amy was wrapped in something and those are the logical items that we're aware of at this point. And both blankets had the same similar canine similar hairs. Right. Okay. They're similar, similar hairs. And you have had leads or tips come in in regards to that particular item? Yes. Yes, and we follow up on, some are better than others, and some are good, but we follow up on, uh, we get calls, we follow up on it. Knowing how involved James Renner has been with this case, I did ask him whether or not he felt like there was being progress made with the investigation. Where do you stand right now on the current investigation? How do you feel, I mean, do you feel like Torsney's doing as good a job as he could, or yeah, I mean, I do. do you feel I, like there's been progress since your books? I mean, obviously there's more suspects and, you know, things have changed. I mean, do you feel like the case is closer to a finish line than it was before you wrote the book? I think every day gets us closer to the answer. My, my, my fear is that, because I, I know in my heart of hearts that this case will be solved one day. My fear is that it'll be solved after the killer has died and he won't face any sort of justice. Um, I don't want that to happen. Um, but they, so yes, uh, to answer your question, I think they're doing a great job. They're doing as, as much as they can, um, but this is a very, very difficult, complicated case. And you talk to the FBI agents and police and they'll say, everything that could have gone wrong with the investigation, everything that could have gone wrong with clues and evidence did. We, ne we just never caught a break. We never caught a break with this case. And Torsney is is brilliant. You know, this is the guy that brought in Whitey Bulger. Right. You know, so if anybody can solve this case, it's 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 him and, and Spetzel. Yeah, you I know? mean, you see the pictures of him in his FBI, you know, vest and everything. I mean, he looks. Yeah. I mean, he looks like the true FBI. You know when agent. I first. <laughs> you know how I first met him is um, I was working as a reporter. You know. Uh, trying to find Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus. And they had this, uh, on the anniversary of Gina DeJesus' uh, abduction, they had this um, vigil near the site where she was taken. And it was her family and some, you know, other community members and things. And they were gathered there. And I, and I showed up and just kind of in plain clothes and watching. What I was really doing was seeing if I recognized anybody as a suspect in the Amy case, you know, were they showing up to this vigil for for gina and as a this guy that looks like a homeless guy <laughs> he dressed in like all camo and just like what a homeless person would wear somebody that you would not pay two seconds attention to comes up and he's like hey james i'm like hi who are you he said it's phil torsney of the fbi and i'm like oh wow okay but they really do like you will never know if they're if they're there in the background, like watching, because that's what he was doing too. He was there to see who showed up. Well, it's like I've got the old news clips, and the you know they're talking about you know at the memorial to, or at you know the vigil tonight. Not only is there people you know saying their prayers for Amy, but there are FBI agents, you know, undercover FBI agents, yeah, keeping an eye out. Sure. Even though, you know, they didn't know exactly what they were looking for at that time, but they they had a suspect description at least. Mm -hmm. But uh The fact that there is a podcast being made about the case of Amy Mahalovic, a documentary 
series that is going to be airing on Investigation Discovery in December. And a number of articles that discuss the 29-year anniversary about Amy's case, you do kind of feel like we are getting close to a solution or an answer to who killed Amy Mihaljevic. And I did pose the question to Chief Spetzel if you felt like we were getting close to an answer. That's a great question. It's really hard to say because, again, the cases evolve, right? And cases grow. So they're not the same size as they were back in 89. This case is as big as it's ever been with more names, more suspects, more interviews, more everything, um, more resources. So it's hard to say that because there's more resources being involved that we're closer. I can say that we have a better perspective on the case because we, you know, as we analyze it and we talk to people, you get a little bit of clarity, but we're nowhere near having the clarity to solve it uh, without some more information. As reserved as Special Agent Phil Torsney is, he was very adamant in one thing that he wanted to get across to the listeners, and this is what he had to say. Just because something's in the media doesn't mean it's correct, and we have information that's... uh, the general public doesn't know, and the media doesn't know, and it's, it's in-house here, uh, you know, at, in law enforcement agencies, the FBI, and the prosecutor's office. And uh, um, that's why we take information, and we don't want anybody to assume, based on prior, um, prior publications or media things that have been put out there, that this case, uh, that that this thing has been resolved because somebody said it's been resolved or thinks it was this person or that person. We want the information because all that's ongoing investigation. And uh, we could take some new information, not focus on uh, certain areas and take new information and solve the case that way. So as we've learned through the interviews with Special Agent Phil Torsney and Chief of Police Mark Spetzel, is that technology and the public are going to be important players in the solution to this case. And when I spoke with James Renner, I did ask him whether or not he thought it was the technology that would eventually catch up with this killer, or would it be the public that provided that tip? I mean, the case is a rabbit hole. I mean, obviously, the, like Mark said, and I agree, and you agree, that they wouldn't continue to pay Torsney the money that they probably are paying him a significant amount. I mean, it's the guy who caught Whitey Bulger. So, yeah. you know, he's not doing it for free. So he's got to be getting somewhere. And there's got to be something that he's got that says we're on the right track. I would think so. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that I think the prosecutors and and police might be putting you know the rolling the dice on or uh, uh, and and what might be keeping them going is this things like this arrest of the golden state killer you know where we've got new ways of using dna and you know all these cases these cold cases are being solved now by using dna to track down distant relatives of the killer because they're able to get that mitochondrial the you know the DNA that's passed down through um, you know I think the father's side of things and uh, so that gives you a spread of like well the killer's related to this group of people from you know Decatur Illinois or uh, or Indiana wherever Decatur is and uh, 
So that gives you at least a place to search and people to talk to. And that's how all these cold cases are getting solved. So if they do have some sort of DNA from Amy's body, I think soon, and soon being like the next year, uh, we'll be at a place where we'll be able to narrow down enough to figure out who this person's potential family was, and that'll give us an idea of which suspect to look at. The newest form of DNA database technology lies with a small company out of Florida named Jedmatch. You've seen them on Dateline, 2020, 60 Minutes. And their website states, the Jedmatch.com site provides tools for making deep comparisons between genealogies and DNA test results to help identify possible hidden ancestral connections with distant cousins. Initially, their privacy policy was pretty vague, which is probably a reason why this has become law enforcement's go-to method when looking into old-slash-cold cases. The privacy policy states, GEDmatch exists to provide DNA and genealogy tools for comparison and research purposes. It is supported entirely by users, volunteers, and researchers. DNA and genealogical research, by its very nature, requires the sharing of information. Because of that, users participating in this site should expect that their information will be shared with other users. That huge break in a cold case terrorizing California for decades. Police say they now have the Golden State Killer in custody. And they use DNA testing to find him. So many families are relieved this morning. Eight-year-old April Tinsley disappeared while simply walking to a friend's home. Well, three decades later, DNA evidence led police to her suspected killer. Having known that the Golden State Killer case and the April Tinsley case had been resolved by the time that I met with Phil Torsney, I did ask him whether or not the new technology that is being used to solve these cases was being applied in Amy's case. And I've played this clip before, but I believe it is important to hear it again. And this is what he had to say. And it should provide all the listeners and the community a little bit of hope. On the phone today with scientists, myself and, and some of the detectives, scientists from various organizations, in an effort to take what we have as far as science goes in this case and forensics goes in this case and move forward to, uh, to something that might help us make an identification or a resolution. That's ongoing. It's going to be ongoing for the next, until we figure this thing out. Uh, if it takes years or maybe a couple of days or a couple of hours. But that's been a process that, that we've kept up with, I believe, as DNA has progressed, and we continue to keep up with that and make submissions, inquiries, uh, in the hopes that uh, science will help us resolve this case. I was told by James Renner about a decade ago that if you attach your name to this case, it's like opening Pandora's box, and you will forever be associated with Amy until the box can finally be closed. Renner has spent over a decade touting his theory and his book, and he isn't wrong when he says this case may be the most complex of any that he has investigated. I feel like the case is filled with so many red herrings that if you don't stick with the facts, you can end up speculating to the nth degree. If this case is like Occam's razor, where the simplest answer is usually the right one, then we have given this suspect more credit than he deserves for being able to elude authorities for 29 years. Amy's case was instantly believed to be more than just a kidnapping after 
two of her friends came forward and told police about Amy meeting someone to help buy a gift for her mother. This is where everything turned, and the missing girl became a girl who was lured by a phone caller. Since then, this case has taken on a life of its own. One thing that I have failed to mention throughout this podcast is the city of Bay Village and its history for ending up in the national press for less than ideal reasons. The name Sam Shepard may not mean much to some of the listeners, but to a large portion, this is the case that people always assimilate with Bay Village. You see, Dr. Sam Shepard was an American osteopathic who was convicted for the 1954 murder of his wife, Marilyn Reese Shepard. The conviction was later overturned, and to make a long story short for now, is that the Shepard case became a national sensation on the level of O.J. Simpson. And only a week after his conviction was overturned, Dr. Shepard was sitting in a chair next to the one and only Johnny Carson on The Johnny Carson Show. He had become a national celebrity for all the wrong reasons. Dr. Shepard's case is one that has spawned a television show and an Academy Award-nominated blockbuster movie that starred Harrison Ford, both titled The Fugitive, that were loosely based on the Shepard murder. Bay Village is picturesque. It is a city that is nestled on the banks of Lake Erie and is home to just over 15,000 people. Lake Road is lined with multi-million dollar homes, and while the rest of the city is a bit more modest, it still takes a pretty decent income to be able to raise a family. The city on a map is very narrow. The areas of commerce are few and far between. And the city is mostly known for its youth soccer programs, bay days, and having access to Huntington Beach. It's rather ironic, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're a community of roughly 15,000 people, yet, you know, you would think it's <laughs> far more than that. But it really is what we think it is. It's a quiet, safe community, but... Bad things can happen. Two, yeah, bad things can happen anywhere. It's happened, you know, we've obviously had our share of homicides and other things happen. But as far as prominent stories, to have two major prominent stories come out of this, you know, place in 60 years, it's kind of crazy. October 27th. 2018 will mark the 29th anniversary of Amy's abduction. It is important for the listeners to know that this case remains unsolved and we need your help in order to help solve this case. Thank you again for listening to episode 10 of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. Stay tuned for next week's episode, episode 11, The City and the People. If you enjoy this independently produced podcast, please help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left on whokilledamymihalovic.com. Any amount is appreciated and it helps keep this podcast running. If you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, that will also help keep the show and Amy's story in the spotlight. You can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 if you have any new information. The FBI is still offering a reward of up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mihaljevic. So anyone with information concerning this case, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again for listening, and be safe.
Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.